He won't let me leave. <laughs> nope, you can't go anywhere, sir. Won't let me go home. Nope, can't go anywhere. Tonight, I got with me my co-host, uh, Brother Tay and Producer Jay. But, but we got a special treat for y'all because we also have a special guest for tonight, too. It's our first guest in a long time, really. And uh, I think that this, this, this is very important. Uh, time so we we thought that we bring in the experts on this one so i'd like to introduce to you everyone uh miguelina camillo esquire did i did i say did i did i say it correctly yes i had to add in that esquire at the end um miguelina can you just inform the people about um who you are and what you do and um you know just tell us a little bit about yourself as we um you know as 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 we you know, uh, as we have you on tonight. Someone's nervous. Sure, well, no, I'm not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not nervous. I'm good. <laughs> well, thank you. I was actually invited by a very good friend of mine who I went to law school with. So I'm a lawyer. I went to New York Law School here in the city, and I've been a lawyer for over 10 years now. And uh, I think my expertise is related to my work in election law. So I have worked as associate counsel at the city board of elections. I was a commissioner at the board of elections. I had my own practice and did a lot of work with families in the Bronx and criminal defense work. Um, and I, you know, love being a lawyer. I was the first lawyer in my family, first one to go to college in my family. My family's from Dominican Republic. Um, so, you know, real, um, American dream story, I would say. My dad was a small business owner and really came to New York for those opportunities for his kids to have, you know, access to education, which he didn't have. Um, so I love, you know, talking and informing people about something as important as our, our right to vote. And with these elections coming up next week, I'm very excited to be here and talk to you guys about that. So let's, let's, let's rewind a little bit, right? You said that uh, you were invited by a, a friend of yours you went to law school with. That friend of ours is Dora, Dora Linda Dios Brito Esquire, right? Right. That's right. Dora, <laughs> so, Seishan and Jeremy, uh, Dora is a former classmate of mine at St. John's University. Mm. Originally, I wanted her to come on um, to, to discuss this with us, but she introduced me to Miguelina because she felt that Miguelina was a better fit because she said that Miguelina is more uh, well-versed in this area. So that's why Miguelina is here. Remember originally, nice I wanted... I'm sorry. <laughs> nice save. Cause man, did that come out wrong? The first way you said that <laughs> Miguelina. Uh, no. Oh, you'll see, you'll see it later. I, it's probably, okay. <laughs> I might. This is why we do post pre- post production. Um, from brother J or brother mm-hmm. Tay. <laughs> oh, that's why. Okay. So it's, it's, so as you see, we're kind of very informal, kind of laid back here. Um, you said that you were born and raised in the Bronx, right? I was born in the Dominican Republic uh, and raised in Washington Heights. And raised in Washington Heights. Okay. So when did you move to the little, Bronx? Little DR. 
Exactly, little DR. I've been in the Bronx now almost 10 years. So my my legal career, being an attorney, has always been in the Bronx. And I lived now, I live now in Riverdale. Okay, ah, that's cool. The place that doesn't want to be associated with the Bronx. <laughs> can't yeah, get away. Actually, I can't escape. There. I grew up there as well. And I just recently found you out did? that it's technically part of Manhattan. Mm, no, no, just that's, no. that's wrong. wrong. Marble, Marble Hill. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's where I grew up. Oh, that's where you grew up? Okay, it's okay. right there. So, <laughs> oh, so you a Harlem boy then? Yeah. <laughs> Get so, the bully Jade then. <laughs> so you were born in so you were born in Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico. Wow, how did I get DR? The easy born, so born in DR. And you came to uh, to New York. Your full family came to the, to DR, and you said that your father wanted uh, better educational um, opportunities for you and your siblings. Yeah. So my my dad came here when he was nineteen here to New York. Um, started working early on, and um, I was still in the Dominican Republic with my mom. I was born there, and then we came mm-hmm. later. So then my siblings were born here in New York, um, and he pretty much set up a life of, you know, working as a bodega owner. So he had a bodega, so I'm the daughter of a bodega owner. <laughs> I worked in that bodega while I was going to college. Um, and that definitely, you know, the bodega life is like part of the New York experience. Absolutely. Like, we yes. Did you have a bodega cat? <laughs> Me too. Uh, that's that was the supervisor. Of course. <laughs> I actually that cat has you no know, duties like that's control. I'm sorry, Tay. Go ahead. No, since she uh, you moved here with your mother, and I know you have seven, so that would make you the oldest, correct? That's right, I'm the oldest. Okay, and uh, I know that you went to law school. Did the, your siblings also like did they follow your sisters and go to college as well? My sister did. She actually did marketing, and she works now at J.P. Morgan. Um, and then my brother actually went, like, the entrepreneur route. So his story is really cool, similar to my dad, like, kind of having your own business. My brother is into going to garage sales, estate sales, online sales, buys things, and then resells wow. on eBay and, like, Facebook, uh, Marketplace. Uh-huh. So he is really enjoying doing that. That's you awesome. Is your, uh, is, is, is your father's bodega still open? No, he actually closed the last one, which is the one I worked at. He closed it when I was in law school. Oh. And I always joke, like, I'm so glad he closed that store because I would still be working there every weekend. Because <laughs> it was like, I started working with him at 15. Like, I turned 15. He's like, okay, every Saturday, that's it. This is your life. You're coming to work with me on the weekends, summers. Any vacation, like from college, like I was there working. So, did it instill in you a sense of uh, work ethic and a need to provide for yourself that a lot of us, you know, I'll just I'll just be frank when I say this that a lot of American kids don't really have that same drive and passion to do for themselves or you know a lot of american kids because I, I it's a common theme i know with a lot of um immigrants or descendants of immigrants that where they come to america and their parents instilling them no you have to work hard because i didn't come over here for you to slack off you know what i mean that do, do you get that sense from when uh when your father was working or making you work oh yeah one thousand percent that is where in the bodega i learned like 
my work ethic, the value of mm -hmm. money, because I work so hard for the little bit of money that my dad mm -hmm. would give me. Um, so, <laughs> and I also really learned to interact. Like I came from a Spanish household where I was very overprotected. Like my parents were like, you know, um, what's it called? Like just hovered and like, were very strict. Mm -hmm. And the bodega was like my way out in a way because I got to work and be amongst my community and meet all different types of people. And that's also where I kept growing my love for helping people, um, understanding simple things, like understanding the language. I would read letters for people that would like be our, our clients, our customers. As soon as I was telling them, like, I'm in college, I think I'm going to go to law school, I'm going to be a lawyer, I just became like a community advocate for a lot of them, just to explain things the same way I had always been doing for my parents, who also had like the language barrier. And I think a lot of our families that come here, you know, this is a foreign land, they don't want to mess up, they want to follow the system. So they're always very scared to just take risks and ever even get in trouble in a way. So I, being the oldest, always kind of guided my parents through that process. Um, and it just really fostered, you know, and supported my role as an attorney in my life. Like I was just kind of advocating for them early on. And then it made sense to go to law school and be a lawyer and, and continue to do that for other people. That's nice. a good way to, oh. be, to be closer to the community that you want to serve. It's the best way, technically. I agree. She served them in three different ways. <laughs> in many different ways, right? She'll serve <laughs> chopped cheese sandwiches and legal advice, right? <laughs> I love that. Like, people would walk in and be like, I knew how they wanted their coffee. I knew what sandwich they wanted. I knew, like, exactly. Like, people are such creatures of habit. I am too. But, like, oh, people cool. come and buy the same thing every single day. Like, it was just... You knew that. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Like, I think that's beautiful. Um, so when so all of this drove you obviously to become a lawyer, right? Um, did your parents support that vision and dream when you told them that this is what you wanted to do? And how in uh, how in how can I say how instrumental were they in you know your your studies of the law? Yeah, they definitely were supportive and were my biggest, you know, pushing, pushing me always to make sure that I got an education. They thought being a lawyer was actually the best fit for me. And, you know, from a young age was telling me that's what I should be considering. Mm -hmm. um, but being in school and like, you know, you, you've gone to college, you've been in school. It's tough for parents that haven't been through that to support you, really. Yeah, tell you have something to say? Oh yeah, we never asked what school she went to. We got to I know, find like, out. It's a lot of hard. <laughs> How? <laughs> I'm gonna ask. Where did you go to school, Megalina? So undergrad, I went to NYU. Mm. That was like my dream school. So I was happy I got to go there. And then New York Law School um, was my law school, also downtown in the city. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, stayed close. I never, I never dormed. I never went away to college. Thinking back now, I wish I had. <laughs> Because Same. I the <laughs> yeah. Well, I stayed local. I must yeah. say, uh, even though I was only in Queens, um, commute. Uh, I, at first, I was commuting, but once, like, I saw what the workload was, I was like, "Nah, I, I got to stay on campus." And it was honestly, I can say, it was the best decision I did make for my college career because 
just cutting out that commute hour and a half every day saved a lot of time, saved a lot of energy. Uh, I got more work done and it was just an overall better experience for me when I went, when I went away and obviously I had more freedom. You know, I encourage all kids to go away for college if you can, you know, and if you can't, you know, circumstances may be, but, um, you know, it is what it is. I, I, I very much encourage children to go away for college, to, you know, just especially if you live in New York, because we're so used to New York and uh, seeing a lot, everything convenient for us. It's nice to get away from the city and see other parts of the country, other parts of the state even. So, I you know, I hear a lot of people who didn't go away for college say, yeah, I wish I did. And I tell them, yeah, you, you kind of should have, but it is, it, it is neither here nor there. So, um, yeah. After oh, Jesus Christ, what? <laughs> After uh, undergrad, you said you went to New York Law, right? What was law school like? Was it a very different, um, like, was it a, a a shell shock for you when you went from undergrad to law school? Um, yes, because it, I was always a good student. Um, and I always just, you know, attended classes, did my work and I would be, I would be fine. But law school kind of just breaks you down completely Mm. and tells you everything you've learned and the way you write, the way you process information, we're going to change all that. We're going to break you down to think like a lawyer or to analyze things in a different way. So I really struggled. And even my first semester, I got like a C, which I had never seen in my life. Um, so it was shocking to me. I know, like, to me, I, you know, it was difficult to, to kind of understand how could that be possible with someone that like, I had always dedicated myself. But regardless, I made it through, I stuck with it. You know, there's some people that didn't come back after that first semester. Um, and it really is you know, time consuming. And I was always lucky. I was able to just go to school full time. I didn't work. Mm. I had a lot of friends that did work, had to work, went to school part time, did the night program, evening program. Um, so, you know, I, I always thought like, okay, they can do it. They're making all these sacrifices They're working and going to school. Like I just have to get through it. And then forget school for three years, law school. Then you have to take the bar exam. And I did it dedicated a whole summer studying for the bar exam because that is also like a whole other animal that you hope to pass that first time you know there's people that struggle and the new york bar exam is one of the hardest exams in the country um so i'm just glad that's all behind me i'm talking about it now i'm like getting my (laughs) (laughs) she's having real flashbacks oh ptsd yeah Yeah, man did you did you pass the bar exam on your first try Yes, I was so happy. But I legit, like, I had a good friend in law school that was in my same grade. Dora was younger Mm -hmm. than us. But, like, we locked ourselves up in a house for the summer. Like, it was her family's house for two months. Mm -hmm. All we did was wake up, go to class, study, come home, eat, fall asleep. Like, my family would come and like give me food, and I'd be like uh, almost, of course, like just half oh. dead. Like, just eat, <laughs> eat food. It was very, very intense, and that's like all you can think about. And I remember the night before the log, the bar exam, oh, I could not sleep. I just was tossing and turning because you just don't know what they're gonna test you yeah. on. 
you know, mm-hmm. there's like 30 different areas you could be tested on. So I just kept repeating like points that I knew. Um, so yeah, it was just very intense, but I always kept thinking I'll be that one person that I studied so hard and I still fail, but there's just no way if you do the work, you stay consistent, you can't study for it in like a week, you have to dedicate the appropriate amount of time and just stick with it. And then, yeah. So that when you find out that you've passed the bar exam, that sense of relief must've been exhilarating. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I was actually already interning at where it, be, it came to be my first job. And, oh, my God, let me tell you, I'm not that old, but listen to this story. Um, that was 10 years ago, 11 years. Wait, I've been an attorney 10 years. Yeah, so, like, 11 years ago, I didn't have a smartphone. Like, I didn't have internet on my phone. I just had a regular day, okay. like, you know, just a phone that you made phone calls with. And I get a text from a friend of mine who was like, oh, the bar exam results came out this morning. Did you pass? That I couldn't access my email on my phone. Uh. I had like a 30-minute commute to my job to where I would get access to a computer. Uh. I was panicking. I had to (laughs) log in an email. And then I'm like reading the email. And thank God I said, congratulations. That that must have been the worst 30 minutes of your life. (laughs) Oh, that commute must have been great. (laughs) Just cursing out the train on the bus, like, I need you to go faster. <laughs> and they actually passed, they released, the, so they always release the results, like, right before Thanksgiving. And this year, they now they release them even sooner. Um, so that list came out, like, <laughs> wait, wait, like, hold on. Excuse wait, me, sister. sister. Excuse me, sister. Wait. No, okay, so quick, quick. Uh, quick heads up, uh, Bingalina. On this, on the show, when we want to interrupt each other, or when we have something to say, or we will, uh, we will address each other by saying, "Excuse me, brother," but obviously, you okay. know, we'll say, "Excuse me, sister," when it comes to you. So, excuse me, sister. Why do they, they? Why do they release the results before Thanksgiving? Are they trying to ruin you your holidays? Absolutely, <laughs> just so you can have a heart attack as you. No, it's so after you, after you finish or you pass or fail, you can eat your preen away. <laughs> It's very say, obvious. Stress eat. You can stress eat or stress drink, whatever one you want to take it as. It's like, hey, look, you got it. Yeah. The exam is always in July. Like, there's two. There's July and February. So I took the July one. So August, September, October. Like, it takes three months or so for them to process all that data. And, like, they release the results. Mm. It just so happens to be it's this usually in November. It's a terrible then horror movie. Lost <laughs> Law school too. Law school. Our exams were beginning of December, so Thanksgiving. I was eating my Thanksgiving dinner and studying. Like my family, I'm like, yeah, guys, I'm here. It's good, and I'd be studying for my final. Oh man, <laughs> this, this is a horrible horror movie. <laughs> sequel. Hey, as long as Just, you got, as long as you got that coquito, you'd be fine. <laughs> that's three months of waiting to find mm-hmm. out if you pass or fail. I'd rather just die. <laughs> So, so you got to do the, the bar exam and then you got to do your own law school finals because the semester is about to end right after. Yeah. I mean, during law right. school, right? You're getting, which during law school, you get one exam for the semester. Okay. Um, yeah. Like journalism. Then, yeah. Yeah. So like everything's writing on that and then there's a curve, mm-hmm. right? So like a certain that's why I would get that C because a certain amount of people got to get the B's and then like 
they'll kick you over and, and you'll get a C, whatever. Um, and then the bar exam comes at the very end. Once you're done with law school, graduate, all of that. A lot of, there's some people that don't even take the bar exam. You know, they just wait, they go into a different career. Um, some people that don't pass that first time, got to take it another time, maybe two or three times yeah. until you pass. So there's all different paths. For Is there a certain amount of times you can take the bar exam? I don't think there's a limit. Um, famously, JFK Jr. took it seven times. Oh, wow. He couldn't wow. pass it. Okay, so you I have to pay for it all the time, right? Huh? You have to pay to take the bar exam. Like, it's actual cost. Yes. It's the, the registration fee. And then even the, the the prep that I was talking about, the class I took in the summer, I had to pay for that separately, too. That's a couple thousand dollars for the prep course. Yeah. Oh, I say, like I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure to take the exam is like at least a thousand dollars or more actually. Oh yeah. yeah, you <laughs> I see why everybody hopes to pass it the first time. I don't I don't know I if I can have another thousand dollars to pay for this. Actually they're, uh, gonna need, they're gonna need that uh, lawyer money. <laughs> <laughs> so after you've passed the bar exam, you got your bar uh, license uh and you're re- you're ready to go. You're ready to you already had an internship at a law firm. Uh, so you were ready to go. You hit the ground running. How quickly did you climb the ranks at your um your law firm? And what law firm was this? So I actually worked with a criminal defense attorney in the Bronx, Murray Richmond. Oh, he had a lot of... Yeah, that, he's recommended a lot of... <laughs> 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 anytime, sorry, anytime a brother was like, oh, I know that defense attorney. I'm like, that's, that's not what I want to get from you. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I I was interning with him, um, and Murray, they know him as Don't Worry Murray. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> hey, you gotta have a slogan. Well, I got to, I got to work on a lot of cool cases. He has, if you look him up, he has some great client, former clients. Um, but I basically worked with him about three and a half years. Just criminal defense. So that's, you know, private client. Basically, we were private defense attorneys, um, mostly in the Bronx criminal court. And after that time with him, I decided I want to go off on my own because I wanted to learn another area. I want I wanted to learn family law because I saw there weren't a lot of family attorneys in the Bronx that spoke Spanish mm-hmm. and that could like really represent the community. So I went off on my own. And I opened up my own practice, which is like, you know, pretty scary. Um, and then I had my own office for almost seven years. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. Nice. Um, what's the name of your practice right now? It was Camilla Law Firm. You know, real simple. It was just me. <laughs> I was a solo practitioner. Mm-hmm. So it was great because you're your own boss. So I made my own schedule, you know, um, it was a business you had to manage. Like, however, if I got more clients, I made more money, mm-hmm. you know, and I had low overhead costs because it was just me. I was in the Bronx and I started like in the back of a bail bond office, like just one Oof. little room. <laughs> so I kind of just started small, you know, I didn't, I answered my own phones and then you're, you're on call every day, all day, you know, like clients will call on the weekend. It was just, you were always on. Um, and I always would think like, man, my clients always knew when I was away on vacation, like without, 
<laughs> I would be landing in PR, right? And a client from three years ago would be calling me like, I just had a question about that case. Mm. If you could get me much, I'm like, oh, how did you, now you call me? So it was, you know, it was very interesting. And I feel like it was very important work to do family court stuff, which is what I focused on. Um, but then I moved on. And then I got into election law, working at the Board of Elections. So real quick, um, go ahead, Jeremy, I'm sorry. How was it? coming up with your own law firm like how how did you build up clientele how did you advertise yourself great yeah um i planned for it i'm a planner mm. so i was at i was working for another attorney and thinking about where i'm where will i have an office and what clients can i bring in and i actually had a few people that wanted me to be their attorney mm. while I still had my other job. Mm. So I was kind of telling them to wait. So I had really built up my clients through making connections. Uh, we have bar associations, which okay. basically they're a group of attorneys and we do a lot of mentoring for young attorneys. We do a lot of networking. That's being a lawyer. You have to be good at networking. You have to put yourself out there. The more people you meet, the more people know, oh, Megalina does family law in the Bronx, you know, and you will be thought of when there's case, there's a case. Um, so that was a bulk of it, building up my name and then preparing. Like I actually went, and it's funny because I'll talk to other people that are like going off. There's different ways to do it. Like you could just say tomorrow, I'm going to open my own office, whatever. I'm going to just find a place. I found a place and I planned for that location. I, I had savings, like I saved yeah. up and I saved up like six months of rent. Ooh. And I said to myself, like, I'm going to go out on my own. <laughs> <laughs> she said six months. <laughs> hey, wow, that's planning. She's, that's, she's some, a planner. that's some planning for your ass. That's right. <laughs> That's a big risk, right? You're, I'm going off. I'm leaving a paycheck. Yeah. I'm going off on my own. Yeah. So I said, if no, if not one person walks into my office, I can at least pay this rent for six months. Yeah. You know, let me, let me try this. And I ended up being okay for seven years. You know, I was on my own and then I volunteered. I closed the office because I made a move, mm. you know, I stayed. Mm -hmm. um, I just continue to do that. Okay. Um, I got a question. Did, um, I know. First of all, you and Dora are, are very close. You're best friends, right? Uh, I know she's like a, probably a little sister to you. Um, I know that she recently just opened up her um, her own firm as well. Um, did, did like what kind of pointers and advice or mentorship did you give her to open her own firm? And you know, do you constantly give her? You know, do you offer that pro that mentorship role on a day to day basis? You know, is it semi basis? Like, how often? Like, what what what's the communication like between you two? Because I know that she's probably going through the same things that you were going through, wondering the same things, have the same ideas, the same plans. So, can you just break down a little bit about how you mentor her too? My brother, my brother. What? You talk too much sometimes. I'm, I, I'm asking a question. <laughs> We're getting to know each other, brother. Thank you. Hey, tell her. This is, this is crazy. Please tell her. Please tell her. <laughs> Did you ask the question? Well, I gave 17 examples. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> um, so part of being an attorney, networking, it's also mentoring, giving, paying it forward, right? Like a lot of people help me. 
So I'm always happy to help people, especially friends and good friends of mine. So um, with Dora, who just took that big leap recently, and it's great, she's actually going to do a little bit of family law. So that's my expertise. You know, I know that area. So I definitely am here for her when she wants to talk through a case. And that's something I experienced. Like anytime I had a case, I would call up a friend like, what would you do? What do you think? Um, and something I told Dora to think about and I would tell any attorney who's saying, I have a job, but I'm going to go off on my own. I will say, okay, while you're at that job, prepare. There are forms. There are basic things that you will need that you should start gathering before you venture off. You know, so with someone like a friend like Dora, I've given her some templates, you know, like this is what your motion should look like. This is what your letters should look like. These are some resource numbers to know. Um, and she, you know, has done it the right way. She built up a great website. She, you have to put money into putting your name out there, advertising. And she also has done the work of, you know, being in bar associations, putting her name out there. So guess what? People are calling her now. Like, they need a divorce attorney or immigration attorney. You know, she has a couple areas that she specializes in. Um, so it's, I think it boils down to those two things, preparing yourself as much as you can and then having your name recognition and networking. Um, speak, I know you said, you said bar associations a few times. So like, I want to ask how many different, like, are you still, are you part of a bar? You're still part of a bar association and how many different bar associations do we normally like see? There are a lot, you know, there are national organizations that are connected in all the different states and the city, New York City is very active. We have a lot of local ones and basically a bar association will just define itself by its membership. So like the Dominican Bar Association is one that Dora and I worked with closely and it's mostly attorneys that are of Dominican descent, Dominican American attorneys um, will join that. There's the Metropolitan Black Bar Association, which is a huge, amazing organization in the city that we collaborate a lot with. Puerto Rican Bar Association, you know, so there's like a lot of different groups that have some root in, um, you know, in their culture, ethnicity, whatever it is. Um, and I can't tell you an exact number, but there's definitely great examples. And I, I will say in the city, we're very lucky. We have such a diverse uh, community that we have a lot of these interests. When you go to like upstate New York, because I've done state bar associations, when you go upstate, they don't have as much diversity. They don't have as much networking. You know, it's just like a whole different um, way of, of practicing. Um, but I've definitely been involved. Dominican bar, there's the Bronx Women's Bar. I was former president there. Um, and then national bars, there's like the Hispanic National Bar Association that I'm a part of. Um, so all these groups kind of just feed resources to attorneys and give us an excuse to hang out. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that. So um, you you mentioned once you were done with the, your own practice, you moved on to election boards. What prompted that decision to make that career move? Yeah, so I actually was able to still have my practice and do a part-time thing. I was a commissioner at the Board of Elections. So the city board of elections, we have the five boroughs, each borough, Bronx, New York, Queens, they each have two commissioners, a democratic commissioner and a Republican commissioner. Everything is bipartisan at the board of elections. Um, so I was appointed to be democratic commissioner representing the Bronx. And it was 
very cool because I, I got to oversee every single election. I got to make decisions, you know, on behalf of the Bronx. Um, and that then led me to know all the work or get to know the work that the city board of elections does. Um, and then I actually became counsel, associate counsel. I worked as an attorney at the board of elections full time. So that's when I closed my practice, left my practice and then went full time to work at the board. Okay. Sorry. I laughed. I thought of a, I thought of someone listening to this. You were like, I made the decisions on behalf of the Bronx. I thought someone was like, that was you who did that. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> oh, we have blamed a lot. Like, you know, when things go wrong, I mean, we are the agency that is overseeing every election. So if there's long lines, if it rains and your ballot got wet, like all these mm. things, you you know, you blame the board of elections. Got you. Oh. Now I know who to come to. <laughs> oh no! Sis, <laughs> listen, I get blamed for emails. I get blamed for every MTA oh. thing that happens. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on! Don't put. Don't put that on me and Jay. We don't blame you. No, not you He's not even not here. Not these two. <laughs> you upset. Not these two, but all my other friends and family members, when things go wrong on the train, they look at me like, this is your fault. I'm like, I'm not it's even okay. there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I know the feel. Um, how was, okay. what, what was the experience like working for the Board of uh, Elections? Like, how did it, was it better than... I'm, well, I won't say practice. better. Yeah, like, how would you compare and contrast owning your own practice versus sitting on the board? Um, it definitely had different types of perks. I mean, for me, at the most basic level, it was just an opportunity to learn about such an important area of our of our life, right? Voting, the process of elections. Like growing up, I used to think there was one election every four years for president. That's it, mm -hmm. right? But no, there are elections all the time mm -hmm. and our staff, you know, we have offices in every borough and then we have a general office in Manhattan for the city. There are hundreds of people that are tinkering with the, with the scanners, with the equipment, keeping the database of voters, you know, making sure that we have access electronically. Like now there's so many things you can do online. Um, like you could check the status of your registration. You could check the status of your absentee ballot. You see results right away online. Like there is a whole operation that is always ongoing. Um, so I loved that, being able to see up close every facet of that process. And like one of the last things I got to do, which I thought was amazing, I got to go to our warehouse in Brooklyn where we store records, old voting records from like the early 1900s. So the books that people used to sign in to be able to go vote, we have those, you know, and actually people are able to request like their family voting history. Um, so I was going there to recover records to, you know, um, produce some reports, but to get to see that, you know, I think that's such an important part of history and people have fought for the right to vote. People are still fighting for the right to vote. So I just felt like it was, you know, this work that is at the core of our democracy that I was like a little part, of, a little small piece of it. it sounds like a Appreciate lot of work. It. Yeah. It sounds you like a lot of work. Like, so you really, you learn very quickly. Like after you get past like the presidential election, there's like the Senate, there's the Senate elections, there's the House elections, then there's elections for rules and laws. It's a lot. <laughs> 
Yeah, and we get we have a lot of local offices, right? Local races. So like it, it, we know next week it's the election for governor, lieutenant governor, US Senate, we have local state senate, assembly members, judges, um, attorney general, right? So those are big positions that are on the ballot for next Tuesday. And guess what? In a year, we're going to be voting again for city council. So we have local representatives in the city. We're also going to be voting for district attorney. So it's just, it's almost like never ending. We always have elections. And those are things that like are dependent on the term, right? Like a U.S. Uh, a state senator is a two-year term. So they have to run every two years. And besides those set terms that we know of, if something happens, if your assembly member, something happens to them and they have to be replaced, then you get a special election where we have to fill that position, right. you know? And, and that's why I give so much credit to our staff, our people at the Board of Elections, because they are constantly, you know, having to, to deal with um, putting on elections. And now it's not just election day, we have early voting. Uh -huh. So we have nine days available to our voters to come vote before election day. And that takes finding locations, getting the equipment there, getting the staff there, our poll workers who thank you to our poll workers because that's all volunteers uh -huh. that come in um, and and do that civic duty. Um, so a lot goes into elections. Yeah, I could see that it's a lot of legwork because um, this, my elementary school behind my house, it's a voting location. And every every November, I see the amount of work that actually gets goes into it with the the voting machines and the hiring of the staff and everything in between. I I can see how how much work it is. Um, speaking of Senate races, you yourself ran for Senate, right? Can you tell us a little bit That's about right. that race and what that experience was like? Yes. So we went through a very um interesting year where we had redistricting so i don't know if you guys spoke about this before on a show but in a nutshell we have a census every 10 years mm -hmm. and then that changes the maps of our districts right. yes for senate assembly even city council they're going through that now uh -huh. um so i ran initially because um a senator you know the sitting senator for where i live left she said she was going to run for something else. So I said, okay, I'm running for her seat. Then that was supposed to be a June primary, um, June 2022 that just passed. But because redistricting, there was a, um, a lawsuit, a fight to change the maps. Then they had to change the maps for Senate. And they pushed the election date to August, August 23rd. So I ended up campaigning for office for a total of seven months. Like from February to August, I was campaigning, trying to run for the seat. Um, and it was quite an experience. It was my first time running, you know, so I was a first time candidate. I had some knowledge of the political process, you know, having worked in elections and being an attorney, being involved with the county party. Um, so it was something that I definitely think was like a once in a lifetime opportunity and I felt like I would run for office at some point. I just wasn't sure when. So I got the opportunity. I said yes right away to to doing it and running and I lost. You know, I lost by about five hundred votes. Mm. So 
very, very yeah. close. It was like one of the closest races in the city. Um, and for it to be an, a new candidate against someone, I because of the change of the lines, I ended up having to go against a sitting elected who has been in office for 10 years. Oh, wow. So he had represented parts of this new district for 10 years, had name recognition, oh, yeah. um, and was able to pull through it. All I'm just hearing is next year. That's all I got. That's all next time. That's all I heard from that. <laughs> yeah. That's not off the table. You never know. There's always that opportunity to to try again. So you're shaking in your boots, homie. I'm coming for that seat. You don't stop me. <laughs> so was it got one this time? So <laughs> so it, it was obviously a great experience for you, and you clearly ready to gear up and ready to go again um so i know that you have as, as actually the entire country has their eyes coming up to this coming midterm election this coming tuesday um some of the key issues that um that voters are concerned about uh jeremy i know that you pulled up a, a list of things can you just run down that list real fast for us you should have told me to keep it up because <laughs> I did not have it. Um, one of the, the main issues that I uh, was seeing was that the economy was one of the important issues that a lot of people want to talk about. So how do you feel about it and what, how do you think voters should feel about it? Yeah, it's definitely an important issue. You know, we are living at with living costs at an all-time high, so gas prices, mortgage rates. You know, I always think back to my family who came here in the 80s and somehow managed to provide us with everything. You know, like my parents are not educated. They came, they became business owners, and they were able to send me to college, get a home. You know, like people would make it. And I want New York to still be that place or the country, United States, to still be that place where you can make it. And for some, there's that feeling like it's just unattainable, you know, even for um, professionals, people that have dedicated time to going to school, they have student debt, you know, they, they can't afford a rent of $2,500 for a studio or whatever crazy it is, you know, so definitely. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, once you said 2500 for a studio, I, I, you know, it's too much. Oh. Huh? Is that what you pay? <laughs> no, not not even like I like. Okay, I haven't found the right place yet, but just looking is putting a dent in my pocket. Sometimes it's like, how is people supposed to afford this kind, even with the with a a, a quote elevated salary? You know what I mean? Like, it's the the rent is too damn high. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's. It's a, right. It's a huge concern. And, you know, we are also coming out of pandemic, yes. right? Yep. For three years or so. And that's also putting a, a twist in this idea of economic recovery. Um, and what we're experiencing is that people who want a hybrid work style, you know, they don't want to commute to work. They need a higher salary in terms of numbers because they're thinking of those costs that they have. Um, so it's a really difficult time and people feel like they want those electeds to be in the seat you know those people that are going to fight for them 
and are going to consider like the average American, the person that has to go to work and, and take their kids to school and feed their family. Like they want to feel like that person representing them understands, you know, those difficulties and is actually going to do something about it. Um, I, I'm a dot, you know, I'm a daughter, small business owner. I worked my way up. My family works very hard and we've gotten to a place where we keep working hard and luckily we can provide, you know, for our families. Um, but it's not easy. You know, it's really tough. So people are looking uh, at that issue amongst other issues. I have one. Cause, uh, I thought about this as since, uh, this is going on and not really our state, but in other Southern states. And you being the attorney for the for elections, how do you feel about like the voting the voting things that are going on? Like some of the voters are struggling to even get a chance to vote due to some of the tactics that have been used by certain people. Voter suppression. How do you feel yeah, about those? We, it is incredible to to understand. For me, it's this: like I don't understand how we don't have higher voter turnouts, how people don't come out to vote. When there are areas of the country that they are literally fighting, you know, they're risking their safety to go vote. There were people in Arizona showing up with guns, manning ballot boxes and trying to threaten people to stay away. Right. I have friends that are going to Georgia to do election protection because it is a reality. Like people will be forced and threatened to try not to go vote. They'll be given wrong information. You know, times will be cut off. Like, just all these things happen. And we in New York are in a bubble where we're begging people to come vote, and they don't. Uh Why do you think that... So the voter... Sorry, go ahead. Continue. I'm sorry, sis. It's... The voter turnout is just... It's unbelievable. And and I think the question was going to be, why do you think Mm -hmm. that is? Voting fatigue, I think. So many elections. Like, I saw it. People voted in a June primary, and then I'm still knocking on their door. Come vote again in August. They're like, we just voted, uh-huh. you know? Well, having to understand all these legal processes that are making them go through multiple elections is very um, difficult, you know? And already for an average person, that's like, okay, does my vote even count? Like, does it really matter? Like, is it going to be all the same thing? You know, people are fed up. Um, so voting fatigue definitely is a problem. Um, and I'm trying to figure out still that gap because we've done a lot of great work in New York. You can be pre-registered to vote. So if you're 16 or 17 years old, you can pre-register. You can say, yes, put me on that list. So when I turn 18, I want to be able to go vote. Mm. Right. There's so much excitement around that idea. I can pre-register. We go to schools, we register a hundred kids in 30 minutes, you know, everybody's signing up. Yeah, it's great. Two years later, is there going to be that same excitement? Like, it's still that missing piece. Like, when it comes to the reality, like, yes, you can vote. You have everything you you need. You have the information. You have the time. But people don't do it. People don't go. People don't feel that sense of urgency or how important it is to to lend their voice. And, and it, one vote makes a difference, you know. Um, so I definitely try to dedicate time to that. I talk to young people about the importance of voting and I try to frame it in a way of understand how much is at risk 
and how quickly things can turn. You know, like Jay, you told me to look up like some key races where it is narrow, thin, razor thin margin of difference between candidates. And we are talking about Democrat or Republican, right? Those are, it's a two party system. We see that in Arizona. That's where they were showing up with guns, you know, threatening people to come vote. We see that in Georgia, where we see Governor Stacey Abrams trying to run for governor. How much she has done through grassroots movement to try to mobilize people. Um, Nevada, Pennsylvania, like these are states where they could be flipped and we will see a difference in our in our majority in, in Congress. Um, and, and these are the people that are determining reproductive rights, you know, economic um, assistance. Um, they're dealing too, with migrants, you know, immigration crisis in this country. You know, what are we gonna do about those issues? Um, so what does it take, you know, for people to really understand what's at risk? Um, our country has gone through many battles and many fights um, and maybe it does take some time like seeing how bad it could be um, for people to realize the importance of their voice so we shall see you know I, I voted already I cast my vote early for Tuesday I'm going to be out Tuesday on election day mobilizing and trying to get people to you know come in it takes two minutes come in and vote um, and that's that's the important thing. Come out and vote. What um, what do you do? You feel that the sensationalism of the presidential election does it play a factor into people not really taking a look at the mm-hmm. the other elections that go on throughout the years? Because I, one thing I've noticed is the basically I've the lack of advertisement for these elections, whereas with the presidential one, you see it everywhere. Like, I don't have cable, so I don't really see commercials and stuff like that, but I will see it on social media. I will see it on news websites, and I can't get away from it at some points. But Even in New York City, you'll see it on, you can see it on, like, public transportation. Yeah, you'll see it everywhere, whereas with the more local elections, it doesn't really seem like they put that much effort into it. Do you think that plays a factor? Yeah. Um, I think I'll start by saying there is a different feeling for presidential election, right? Like the voter turnout is just going to be higher. Mm -hmm. People do come out more frequently and not by much. Like a president can be elected with like 30% of the vote as opposed to our local elections where the winner usually has like 10% of the electorate, Mm -hmm. right? Well, like in my district, for example, there's about 100,000 registered voters in the Senate district. Guess how many votes the winner got? He got 5,200 votes. Wow. In 100,000 registered in the electorate, 5,000 people came out and voted for him. Wow. And 5,000 people voted for me too, but it was 500 less than him, right? So we both pushed out similar number of people to come out and vote in an August election. So there's definitely a difference between a presidential election and any other, mm-hmm. you know, there's just like that, there's going to be a bigger push for the presidential. And then as to your comment about 
the effort. Well, I didn't mean that like in a negative way. I just meant like there's there's a different level of push for those elections versus yeah. the locals. Yeah, so it's it's a money thing, right? Like people candidates have to raise money. Like I as a candidate actually dreaded that. Like that was my biggest like the most daunting part of it. Yeah. I had to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to go into mail digital ads you know um commercials radio ads and you put money into that um it is an insane amount of money actually when you look at the numbers how much money goes into elections um but what i want to say is it's frustrating still because even with all the money that goes out and candidates pushing out that message, you will still have people that said, I didn't know there was an election going on. I missed it. Wow. It's like, so then how do you get, it's like, <laughs> it's called touches. Like you want to, you want to touch people in different ways. So like I would have ads on Instagram, Facebook, I would do the mail. I would knock on your door. I will like be on the street corner waving, like, please come vote. And some people would still say, I didn't know it was an election, you know? So it's like, at that point, you just have to focus in on who are the people that usually vote. You know, there are things, uh, there's some, it's called a prime voter, someone that consistently votes in every single election, even the local elections. Mm -hmm. If you voted in the last three elections, you're a prime voter. I'm knocking on your door because you care. You come out and vote. And that's all we can do at the end of the day because it is just difficult to, to get not only the message, but rely on that person to say, okay, yes, I'm going to make a plan. That whole thing, make a plan, go vote. Like, who's going to actually make that plan, set aside time, and go vote, you know? Okay. Yeah. You know, as a side note, I actually get those messages all the time. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my family makes me vote in every election that comes up, so I get text messages and everything, and Instagram messages. They'd be like, it's like hey, come vote for this. And I'm like, God. Can I do it tomorrow? <laughs> well, I would love to take the chance. Like you are three guys in New York. You're educated, conscious about what's going on in, in the world around you. Yeah. You know, what more can be done to, to get younger people or get people just in general motivated to come out and vote? Well, well can I, I will say that, you know, I think one of the reasons if we go back to voter frustration or voter fatigue that you mentioned one of the, i feel like one of the reasons why the voter turnout is so low especially among our demographic you know african-american men even sometimes latino men a lot of the times we feel that politicians don't have the best interests of our demographic and so it leads us to vote more voter registration and really dismissal you know what I mean? Sometimes like, oh, we don't care. These politicians don't care about us. So what what do you suggest would be the way to get uh people like us, people like me and Brother Tay, me and Producer Jay, to turn us around, get that out of that mindset of our leaders don't even care about us. Our elected officials don't mean anything. They don't care about us. What to that you say, and also what do you say will get us to change that mind? Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it does come to you having a connection with that person or the person's story. So with me as a new candidate, for example, a lot of people connected 
to me being the daughter of a bodega owner, the immigrant story, the first to go to college. Like people will hear that story, not even have met me, but the story like it resonated with them, right? So I think it's messaging, like does that candidate have a message you could relate to? And then if it's actually someone from the community or let's say a city elected that's running for re-election, then you want that person to be present. You don't want them to just come around during election time. Like you want to, you want to be like, oh yeah, Megalina's running again. Yeah, I saw her giving away food the other day, or I saw her at a school. And like, you want them to actually be felt right in, in the area that they're running in. Um, and you'll hear that actually with a few elections where it's someone like comes out of nowhere, and you're like, who's that? Like I've never seen them. I don't know them. You know, people want to feel like. They care. Like that is someone who's been around, who's not just here for the ego, for the title of whatever the position is. Um, so I think it has to just be like that connection somehow. And what we've been kind of talking about is the messaging. You know, we're moving, we're in a tech world, we're on TikTok, we're on Instagram, like and TikTok actually doesn't allow political campaigning. I think if they did, people would get messaging much quicker because yeah, I spent <laughs> I spent a good amount of time on TikTok, you know, looking at like food videos and dance videos and stuff. <laughs> like political messaging, but that is something that is hasn't happened, you know. So actually, I can you know actually an idea I thought of to answer your question. I think the idea, because we know that everyone knows that this Tuesday coming up is election day. I think it's better to have it to have more than one election day on the calendar that's like celebrated like this. Like everyone knows, like oh, election day is next Tuesday. Is the Tuesday coming up? I think it's a sense that if you want people like to show up to vote more, you'll be like oh, like there's election day in November. Oh, don't forget there's election day in April too. That's April 10th, where like those elections will be on there. I think it's the idea. And to the Jay's to uh, brother Jay's point that a lot of people will look at that and be like oh like it's fatiguing thing and people don't care about that but a lot of people who will look at it and be like oh okay I was like all right we have election day on this Tuesday and then a lot of parents and a lot of people will be like oh there's election day on the tenth because a lot of people will be like oh my kids don't go to school that day so in their brain they're like oh I got to vote that day and we'll like they'll probably look up more stuff coming up that's how I think you get more turnout for that. That's a really good idea. I'm, I'm going to write that down. You know, I'm, <laughs> there you go. I think, I think that's more of a logistical that. thing, though, no? Because um, as we know, as well, as Miguelina has laid out for us, campaigning is a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of work. You have to register to campaign. You have to get nominated and things of such of that sort, right? So it takes a lot of time and prepping to do the, whatchamacallit, to do the campaigning. Yeah year and then it culminates with election day i think that's why they put it so close to the end of the year because it's it's a culmination of everything that's been happening before that but even if you so even if you put in like april they people will be campaigning around the clock around the calendar no but you know what I, but that's what i'm saying is that do remember <clears throat> she said that everyone voted like everyone had a presidential election and then like a month later she was like hey come vote again for this like, you see, like, I think as a culmination, I think it's better to have separate days and have it be marked on the calendar. And also just to have that mark. And as you, the nominations, as it takes time for this process, having some of those elections closer to the other days. 
So, like, if there's an election for the judge, the district attorney, and the, the local senators, those those nominations are done and done in December, and they have till May or April to get their nomination out, and then that's the election day part two, and then you have election day that you always do in November that one does like presidential, senate, governor, things like that. I think it's better that way because if you have a way that it's more recognizable, it's more easier. Trust me, as someone who had to do clicks. And had to do headlines from newspapers. As soon as anything is recognizable as a day, people will come to it all the time. That's an experience yeah. talking. I respect it. I respect it. Um, producer J, make things pretty. Yeah. Producer J, um, were there more? What were the? Were there more topics on that list of uh, voter I mean, concerns? Abortion yes. rights. Yeah, I was just going to say she touched upon it a little bit about abortion rights and the whole Roe v. Wade uh, situation that we we had an episode about before. Um, What are your... uh, What's that? (laughs) I'm going to go hear it. I'm going to go look back and hear it. Oh, good. You can watch me fight. Yeah, so so that that episode, that, that was the episode I originally wanted Dora on because, you know, she, we wanted... um. A legal perspective and a medical perspective. I wanted, um, I wanted to ask one of my nurse friends who, um, to to come on the show alongside Dora and kind of you know bounce off of us because we didn't want it to be just a male conversation with that issue. So I wanted her on that, but she wasn't available. I wasn't available, so it just didn't work out. But we did touch on it just very basically. So can you go into this issue a little bit more for us here and give us the the um the female perspective of the issue in regards to this coming election like what is at stake in terms of reproductive rights on Tuesday especially especially in states like Georgia and Arizona right. Nevada too right yeah so so there it, it's life or death right for for women that are and maybe it's not a full realization yet that when there's a ban on reproductive access, a lot of times we're not even talking about a ban against abortion. It's against contraceptives. It's against plan B. It's like all these things that have been normalized that for 50 years, you know, we've had president, we've had protection over it on a federal level that it's going to go away, you know, one day to another. And it's a singular issue that's very powerful. Like I know a lot of Democrats that will side on that issue if they are pro-life, right? Republicans that talk about that's a singular issue they care about. So it's still that big motivating factor. I think the idea of states that are blue, like New York, the idea was that because this is such an important issue, we would have more female voter turnout, mm. right? Because we care about protecting that right. And New York has codified that right and has protected it. And we want to go a step beyond and actually provide, you know, um, economic support, you know, access to everything that's related to to reproductive rights. Um, but in the country, right, those states that are battling and are having a choice between a representative that will actually put a ban, you know, will stop that right, will then lead to women even being prosecuted um, if they try to travel. There's like certain states that are talking about like, we're even going to come after you if you try to travel out of state to get an abortion. 
and we're going to penalize the doctor. I think it was, oh. um, no, there was a, was what, it uh, Ohio? Blanking on me. There was telehealth. You know, there's something now with COVID, telehealth became very mm-hmm, important. Mm-hmm. The doctor could prescribe you online mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. To, to deal with a, a situation. So if a doctor in, like, Oregon was, like, telling you, yes, go get your prescription to to have that issue resolved, right, and, and seek to access the medical care because it is medical care, seek the medical care you need, if that person, that woman was in a state that didn't allow it, then that's a conflict for that doctor whose practice is to take care of their, their patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are just so many implications um, as to what this really is going to lead to. Um, and I think it's interesting that in states, even like Kansas, right, where in general people are feeling like, oh, we're pro-life, uh, we don't care if abortion, if Roe v. Wade was overturned. Well, they put that on a referenda, on the ballot. They asked the voters, do you want abortion to be banned? No, they don't. You know, I think if you get to asking the people directly, forget about politics, forget about what the representatives are talking about. When people have a chance to actually vote on a ballot, do you think we should ban abortion access? For the most part, I think it's like 70% of the country says, no, we don't want to ban abortion. You know, we know how much bigger a risk because right, the automatic thought is women are going to die because they're going to find a way to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, so then they're going to go uh, a different route. There was this awful movie that I saw in high school called If These Walls Can Talk. I don't think you've seen it. I've seen it. I brought it. See, that was, so when we talked about the episode, I, I mentioned the movie that I saw. I couldn't remember the name, but I think I saw, I think that's the name of it. It was, it was horrible. It was horrifying. Yeah. Cher was in it. Cher was like the abortion doctor. Do you remember? I think so. The one that he went to her house and in the, yeah, that scene. Yeah. It, it terrified me. I'm, yeah. It terrified me. He, he brought, he, he brought it up to me. And uh, as a, this, there's not a thing. I am not a movie person, but I well, have I, seen just, no, I, like I definitely have seen clips, just clips in other movies and other shows of just like what it was like before abortion had like these sort of things where people had to go like, and like houses or behind alleys or behind behind houses to get this stuff done, and just the idea of them having if it is banned, like I said, people are always gonna find a way to have an idea to go back to do go back. I guess it's since go back in time to do that, it can is not healthy in a way. Yeah, like, and, what, and as what, an any person would not want that. No one wants to see that happen at all. The mantra. And I, I oh, think it's, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No. Um. We get so caught up in this theory that, like, if we allow this right, then somehow we are personally advocate. Like, I am pro-choice. I believe in a woman's right to choose. That doesn't mean I'm going to have to get an abortion myself, you know? Like, I have my own separate, but I want that right to be protected, you know? Because who knows if there ever would be a situation that I would need it because there are medical circumstances that can lead to needing an abortion, mm-hmm. you know, um, take away like just a personal choice that, you know, you get pregnant, whatever happens. And like, there could be some discussion, like if, if it's a moral or not, but like, if it's a health decision, a, a need, 
Um, I want that choice. Um, and people get so attached to somebody else's ability, you know, like, why should I be controlling another woman's right to do that? And then to have men making these decisions, you know, it's just incredible, you know, and, and it just sets us back. We're just going backwards back in time. So what I was going to say is like, what, what the line is, is that you can't ban abortion. You can only ban safe abortions. Right. Yeah, there sounds about right. It's to me, it's almost check a, me, huh? I'm <laughs> sorry like, about this. Check me. That line's a banner. Check me. Yeah, put it in the bar. <laughs> no, yeah. that's what people say. It's gonna go in the description when I type it out. It's not. I'm just letting you know. So the states that have officially, well, have if they have officially banned abortions, are those states? Have do they have seats that are up for election this coming Tuesday? Yeah, so I actually had pulled that up because I know you asked me. I think uh, that's a personal thing because I think I think there's like two. I think a few in Georgia, mostly because like the Daily Show and Trevor Noah is there in Atlanta, and they're also doing some stuff about it as well. Mm -hmm. But also just as a thing that I think I I read about as well. Yeah, I, I can tell you that there, so remember how I said uh, people have a right, um, are having the ability to vote on a ballot, you know, whether they want to protect that right or not. So there are measures to protect abortion, California, Michigan, and Vermont. Mm-hmm. They're going to have that on the ballot. When they go vote for their representatives, um, there's going to be a question, do you believe in, in protecting uh, this reproductive liberty, right? This access to, repro- to health care. Um, and people will get to vote. And I'm sure we're going to see the outcome of those ballot measures being like overwhelmingly supported. Mm-hmm. Most likely. Um, and, Most likely. And, and the yeah, and opposite, there's measures to restrict the access. So Kentucky, for example, um, has an amendment where they want to say that they're not, you don't have a right to abortion and they're not going to fund abortion. Um, they already, it's illegal in Kentucky to have an abortion, um, but this measure is going to make it part of the law, right? If it's voted in. And I would be interested to see if that's not, not supported, right? Like, so people in Kentucky can get to vote on it. And if it's the general trend of the country who believe in protecting that, right? Hopefully that measure doesn't pass, you know, hopefully it doesn't get enough votes. Okay. Um, and that would be good for them to see that. Talks an interesting place. There's even, there's a lot of southern states that always like that always get me confused. Not confused, like they're always surprising depending on the result. Louisiana is definitely a good one as well. That normally like can go, that can flip and flop a lot when it comes to a lot of things. Yeah, I think I mean, in, it's important to have contested races, right? It's important to have people wanting to involve themselves in the political process, run for office. You know, we have a lot of sit- sitting electeds that have been there for decades, you know, um, and that's good in a way. They have the institutional knowledge. They, as long as they are still, you know, with an ear to constituents or communities, that's fine. But we also want to see these new people come in, you know, because times change. And that's actually a, a problem with um, the Supreme Court, you know, having lifetime appointments. Um, we had former President Trump being able to appoint 
you know, so many representatives to the court, they're there for the for the rest of their life, you know. Um, Something I want to ask you about that. That, that. that just sparked a question in my mind. Do you Jesus think, Christ. honestly, no, seriously, do you think that it's right for Supreme Court justices to basically serve until they, you know, until they die or until they resign on their own? Or is should it be like an elected uh, position where they serve a term? And if the if the president wants to appoint them again, they have to reapply for, you know, uh, re-election or whatever, reappointment or whatever have you. Because I think it's ridiculous that this career Supreme Court justices where they serve for decades, you know, what I mean, it's 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 mind boggling to me. Yeah, there's a lot of history of the Supreme Court. It's our highest court. And I think the lifetime appointments came with the idea of keeping like a stability, mm-hmm. you know, of the judges um, and being proportional, ideally probably to have like a, a diverse makeup of liberal and conservative. Um, but we see that that's not always going to be the case. So I am not for, you know, continuing um, these lifetime appointments where we have such a skewed representation. Mm-hmm. You know, now we have six conservative judges and three liberal. We're always going to have that that type of uh, opinion coming out where it is on more conservative side, and that's not representative of the entire yeah. country. You know, if we if we somehow mandate that balance, it's always going to be five five and a tiebreaker. You know, somewhere else. Well, the tiebreaker is the vice president. You know, like um, not the vice president. I'm sorry, that was in in Congress. But like, if there was a tiebreaker. Uh, kind of structure, then that makes sense. Lifetime appointment, right? Um, so I, in every other position, as you said, there's there's certain requirements to to always run for re-election, and I think that is important to make sure that we we still are representative of. Jeremy, last issue. Well, I think there was one more of the top three. Um, the the last important issue was uh, immigration, which mm. is mostly toward the southern states, where the, it's a main issue there. Um, what are your feelings towards that? Yeah, I mean, it's the migrant crisis. Um, and we are a country of immigrants. And this is a country where uh, people have come to build better lives for their families. Um, and there's been pathways, you know, for them. And I think it, it's problematic what we're seeing happening where they're being used. These people are being used as um, as a political pop, right? Because they're being sent to places like here in New York to kind of prove a point. And, and you know, funny enough, those people are actually doing better because they get, you know, resources. Um so it's a tough issue that we need to have a better approach. You know, like if we're going to have the open borders and we're not going to have any type of um, structure to get them into the right place and have the right resources, then it's a free-for-all is no good either. Um, but it is a key issue that people are always concerned about. It's funny, I was watching some other debate and they asked some candidate for a local race about it. And it was something about like, well, my family came, but they did it the right way. 
and the families that are coming now are not doing it the right way. And it's like, yeah, but there's always been like a faulty immigration system where people have come um, and they haven't followed every single bullet point that you're supposed to follow and they make it. And because they're from certain countries, it's okay. You know, when they're from other countries, it's not okay. So it's just not right to, to, we don't want America to become that place where like you're only accepted if you're from this list, you know? So big issue to, to consider when you're thinking of those candidates that will represent you and how they stand on that issue. It's one of those things where like you need, there should be a system in place for those who aren't doing it the right way to get on the right path to do it the right way. Isn't that what um, DACA was for? Mm-hmm. Or am I, am I mixing them up? Well, DACA wasn't upheld by the Supreme Court. You know, they didn't allow that as a permanent solution. Um, and that was kind of written in as a possibility, you know, for um, young people that are seeking education and having access to education here. Um, and, and that would be a pathway for them and then ultimately for their mm-hmm. families. So it's like, that's a good point. Even when they try to do it the right way, it's still being blocked yeah. by those that just don't want them here. Um, but for a second. Yeah, it's just, it, it's a big problem um, that I always thought about doing immigration law and I always felt like, am I really going to help people though? Because it's such a convoluted system. Uh. Um there are countries that are really struggling, like Venezuela now has a, spe- a very fast process that if you are a citizen of Venezuela, you can come here like almost automatically mm-hmm. because they're, they're, you know, so, going through such a yeah, turmoil. Yeah. yeah, Venezuela is a mess right now. They got their own issues right now. Yeah. So just Actually, like a- if you have, as a heads up, if you ever want to learn more about Venezuela, there is a... You ever heard the show last week? Last week tonight, there's a a good thirty minute segment about all of Venezuela's history and their okay. issues. Wow! Last week tonight helps us keeps me very informed. They actually did something about bail bail reform today. Oh wow! They did. Oh. You talking about the um, that show with the British guy, right? I forget his name. John Oliver. Yes, John, John Oliver. Oliver. That uh, a lot of people like to, especially a lot of conservatives like to make fun of. Yeah, he's actually pretty good at his job. He makes the show interesting. But I'll definitely. Check very, oh, definitely. I've I've been watching him since like the first season came out. I haven't missed one yet. <laughs> so in closing, because I know it's, a, it's getting pretty late. Um, in closing, Miguelina, we appreciate you for coming on. And is there anything yes. that you want to say, uh, as a closing remark, and you put a final stamp on tonight? Any jokes you want to make to make fun of us? Yeah, make fun <laughs> of us if you want to. Well, no, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to come on and chat. And I think at the end of the day, we were really here to highlight next Tuesday, November 8th, General Election Day. And it is very important to go out and vote. And what I would say as a general message is think about all the people that don't want you to vote. And that should be your drive to go out and do it. Fuck them. That's what she means. It's okay. <laughs> it's a, you have to now screw it. <laughs> this is home, so let me get one. <laughs> Look, I was very nice. <laughs> you asked me. 
say give everybody the um the shout out information. Well, one thing one oh. before you go, I just wanted to say that going back to what we talked about before about how we can get more of like our younger demographic to vote is things like this appearing on social media podcasts and getting the word out that way because I feel like a lot of this generation gears towards that like you mentioned with TikTok, TikTok and stuff like that. I feel like that's important for the younger audience to know how important it is to vote. So I do appreciate you coming on and giving that to us and for our audience. Yeah. Also Honestly, not to say with say, I'm sorry. Especially with the cutoff of like people not going as much cable as they used to now. Yes. Like cable's technically like there's so many alternatives to cable, like with YouTube TV, Hulu and like uh, Peacock TV. It's a lot easier. Like these is I'm probably right now this is like the one of the most successful ways to get to it. Yeah, and not to mention, um, Miguelina, you mentioned earlier connecting with the candidates. You know, we got a local girl here. You know what I'm saying? We got a local a, a local story, a story that we can all appreciate and you know, one we all know too well. So I think you know, producer Jay was right when I said, you know, getting people on this platform to do these kinds of things with us is what makes it better for us. I don't so, think yes. you with us in general. If, but, if you, you know. run again, you got my vote. <laughs> Which mean I'm putting this on what, what I'm saying it right now. If it's <laughs> no ifs. <laughs> when I'll come back to make you know, you know what? I commit to making the announcement. If I run again, I'll announce it on your show. Let's go. That's amazing. Let's go. You got the Great. inside scoop. Um so yes, more Lena, again, we can't thank you enough. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm glad Dora hooked us up because I'm this this is amazing. Um, Tay, can you give everybody the shout out information, please? I can. Can you ask nicely though? Let me stop. Uh, if, the show. <laughs> you ain't gonna do nothing. Anyway, <laughs> if you want to reach out to us, please you can reach out to us at email on excuse me brother podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Instagram, which is excuse underscore me underscore brother with an A, not the ER. I know how some of you are on Instagram. You can write us, write us up. I do check those messages all the time. You can reach us now on TikTok, which I think is also excuse. Is it un- any underscores in that jar? Excuse me, brother. Podcast, all one word. Excuse me, brother. Guys on TikTok, and also you watch this on YouTube. Like, subscribe to us. Leave your comments. I do read them. They hurt, uh, but I do read them. Oh, <laughs> um, Miguelina, is there any? Con- I'm sorry, Miguelina. Is there any contact info you want people to be able to reach you by? for professional legal advice or anything of the sort sure i still have an instagram it's camillo four and why camillo the number four thank you very thank you very much for giving us your time and opportunity to come on this we appreciate you very much thank you guys big up for the vlog yeah. 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 yeah.